Today's guest, I would say, is one of my heroes. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is a retired Army Ranger. He is the author of books on killing and on combat, and along with a number of other books. He has uh, one coming out, I believe, uh, this spring on spiritual combat. And the reason why I refer to him as uh, one of my heroes is that uh, his book on killing, his first book, greatly redirected the trajectory of my life. Back in 2009, I was a graduate of Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. My plan was to be a lieutenant of Marine. And uh, in that year, I, I read Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's book, and it, and it basically it kind of nudged me. It was a straw that made me decide not to take my commission. And I think that was the right move. I mean, he shares a lot of the psychological effects of combat and warfare, and, and that kind of nudged me away from it. And even though I, I know I made the right decision for myself, it is something I think about all the time because... The propensity for violence is something so greatly tied to male psychology. And before people judge of, oh, that's male bravado, male ego. No, this is actually a function of testosterone. And the reason why we're here is that we've had ancestors particularly male ancestors who are willing to do violence to protect the clan from barbarians, or or some of us are, are I'm actually many of us are probably also de descendants of the barbarians. I think one in five of us are descendant from uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, and if you're not, you're probably descended from Vikings. Basically, this is a, an important function that perhaps in, in the modern first world has become less and less dire. And I think even though most of us, if you're not in the armed forces, hopefully you'll never have to be in a situation where you have to do violence. Hopefully you won't have to be in a situation like that although it could happen to anybody. The thing that actually applies to all of us, no matter who you are or what your situation is, especially if you're a man, so much of male self-esteem, well-being is tied to this ability to do violence. And Lieutenant Colonel Grossman shares about this with some of the trends amongst young men, particularly American young men right now, porn addiction, video game addiction, these mass shootings, male suicide rates. A lot of this is tied to this perhaps missing uh, function or missing opportunity to express this function of violence, which is something that has been so virtuous and is ingrained in the depths of our unconscious mind. And he shares a lot about these uh, negative stimuli like porn and video games, but also um, how a modern man can act access this in a healthy way, being able to express the protector side of his masculine archetype rather than the villainous side. In this episode, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman shares a lot of the effects of violence that most of us aren't aware of, like how memory is lost, how uh, sometimes you won't be able to control your body, how training affects all of that. And you know, some of the statistics in his first book that most people are unaware of is that prior to the Korean War, and even in World War II, the firing rates were 20% or lower, meaning that Four out of five American soldiers, when being shot at by the enemy, would not fire back because, as he refers uh, to as the universal human fear, people just don't want... It's like there's something against doing violence against your own species. And um, obviously in warfare, this causes complications. And of course, in the movies, if you grew up watching war movies, this seems like a crazy thing. I mean, in Saving Private Ryan, it seems like everyone's shooting everyone. That's actually not how war was until uh, relatively recently. And um, Colonel Grossman's books, he shares on, on the effect of this kind of remorseless killing and what causes PTSD and what prevents PTSD, but also for the civilians, how you can access this part of the masculine archetype in a healthy way, uh, being a sheepdog instead of a sheep or a wolf in his language. And actually, uh, one interesting point, uh, there's an interesting fact, if you happen to watch the show Black Mirror, there's an episode based on uh, the information in his book, uh, it's called Men Under Fire. It's one of the one of the episodes where they where they have, um, I believe it was Marines in the future killing enemies. Anyway, if you happen to watch Black Mirror, you can check that out. Colonel Grossman also shares about ways that civilians can prepare, as I said. I mean, this is something, it's a function of testosterone, this ability, this propensity for violence. And as he shares, the difference between the good guys and the bad guys is, of course, empathy. Now, with the masculine archetype, 
the Mask and Archetype Challenge is, is available. Uh, as you know, you can go to rwando.com slash archetype. It's a 21-day challenge full of meditations and exercises to help uncover this part of your primal unconscious, the testosterone-driven virtues that live deep inside of your psyche. And unfortunately, most of us who've grown up in uh, the softer first world are very disconnected from this part of ourselves. So you can check that out at rwando.com slash archetype. It's the Mask and Archetype Challenge, which will help you reconnect to the testosterone-driven virtues of your unconscious. And part of that is the protector archetype that Lieutenant Colonel Grossman speaks about throughout this episode. It's one of my favorite episodes. I know I said that about a recent episode as well, but it's also one of my favorite episodes. Right now, you're listening to episode 080, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman on Killing. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, it's been uh, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for making the time. Uh, my pleasure, bro. Truly an honor to be on board. And you know, one of the things I always try to say on the podcast up front, uh, I've been on 60 Minutes in 2020 and Larry King, and but none of them are Mount Tavilla Beans. You know, the, you get five minutes, you can't control what's on. And then mm-hmm. it's gone and nobody remembers it. And, and there was a time when the, the citizen journalism didn't exist. That's what this is, citizen journalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were maybe two, three newspapers in every city. Uh, there were 20 magazines that really impacted and, and, uh, and, and three major networks. And if you, if you didn't get one of them, you couldn't get. Now, we've, we've torn away that, that barrier, the guardians at the gate with our podcast, citizen journalism. And we've got deeper levels of knowledge, and they stay there. They really are there to be tapped into in the years to come, unlike you know some ephemeral radio interview that accomplishes nothing. So I really, really want to uplift you as a host Thank for a you. podcast and your listeners who are seeking deeper knowledge. And it's really great to be on board with you. I love the stuff that you're doing about masculinity and focusing our energies and archetypal roles. That's really what, what I've been doing with the whole sheepdog model. And, uh, and, and I, I, I tell everybody that the one thing that will come out of this, this uh, pandemic is a vast influence in what a lot of people call prepping, preppers, mm-hmm. sheepdogs, protectors. We understand now deep in our gut that the government is not always going to be able to protect you. The police can't always be there. You have to accept responsibility for your own protection and your loved ones. That may mean martial arts, it may mean training, it may mean, you know, having food reserves or whatever it is, all those various things together. But an increase in embracing that archetypal role of the, of the sheepdog, the protector. And that's what you're all about in so many ways. And the point of all that is that uh, the world needs what you got to give now more than ever. Does that make thank sense? You. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, just this uh, pandemic situation has, I think many of us uh, in small families are realizing we have to kind of uh, rely on ourselves for food, yep. maybe protection. If the world breaks down into anarchy, we all need to know the, the themes of your, of your work as well. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah. So uh, we, we, you were kind of on a roll before uh, before we hit record. So I, I don't, I don't want to lose that, but I do want to say up front, uh, as I mentioned before we start recording, um, your book on killing it's one of the few books that very directly changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, I was supposed to be a Marine Corps officer. I graduated OCS, read your book, 
there's a few factors that led to my decision, but I did have second thoughts uh, due to some of the things I read in your book. And um, yeah, so this is an honor to have you on. I have so many questions for you, but yeah. And, and you know, the, the follow-on to on killing is on combat, also right. on the Commandant's Required Reading List. And, and if I could have anybody who wants to prepare for deadly force, uh, the book I'd recommend first and foremost is on combat, issued in the mm-hmm. DEA Academy, issued in the Marshals Academy, translated in five languages now. When I wrote on killing, I thought the the secret hidden heart of combat was about killing. What I found out was those who fully prepared themselves, killing is just not that big a deal. There's no wrong way to respond to killing. They're all okay. But uh, uh, where the, the heart of it, the secret of combat, is what happens in the incident, tunnel vision, auditory mm-hmm. exclusion, slow motion time. How could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat mm-hmm. and just now let people, you know, during combat, these shots would probably get muted. Why, why are we just now finding these things out? So, and then after combat, re-experience in the event is not PTSD. It's normal. It becomes PTSD when you try to not think about it. Mm-hmm. You cannot not think about it. You've got to separate the memory from the emotions. And we talk about ways to do that. The swig of water is what we news nationwide. You're up here in fight or flight. We want to pull you down to rest and digest. And one thing I know you work a lot about sexual focusing. Um, The body breaks into the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, and the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest. Mm -hmm. But it's also called feed and breed, feed and breed, fight or flight, feed and breed. So after a, a, a dangerous or stressful event, you're in fight or flight. The backlash is feed and breed. Right. So fire, EMS, police will tell you after they've been in a, a threatening, dangerous, horrendous event, the adrenaline's pumping through their body. They get home, they gorge themselves, and very often they have some very intense sex. <laughs> very intense sex. And, Interesting. And, and yeah. They think, what am I doing here? <laughs> and the truth is, it's normal body you know, we're not we're put an adrenaline surge dynamic, whether it's rock climbing or firefighter in the heat of a fire or, or a cop in a gunfight. And then we backlash in the opposite direction to feed and breed, fight or flight, feed and breed. And, and that's how we're wired. And, and is that because, uh, I mean, if you survive combat like that in nature, you probably just killed a, a major threat. You might as well procreate before the next threat. Is that the exactly, exactly. idea? Yes, it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a motivation to pass on the genes, you know, the procreation in the face of death. Uh, but it's a weird dynamic, and it scares people. And we don't understand we're wired that way. Fight or flight, feed and breed, right? Yeah. Rest and digest. And so uh, after this stressful event, both both parties can be invested in some very intense sex. It scares people. So we want to be forewarned and forearmed about these things. It's normal. <laughs> I know, enjoy it and move on. You know? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I saw that in On Combat, you made the, the parasympathetic backlash comparison to the post-orgasm state. Yes, uh, yes, when, I, when I speak about yes. sex, sometimes I use the opposite. It's like you don't want to, for guys who are porn addicted, you don't want to be on that all the oh, time yes. because you're putting yourself yes. in a depressed state. Yes, exactly right. Uh, you know, you, you want to, yeah, oh, that's well said. You can, you can delete the fight or flight dynamics and there's nothing in the well. You can also delete, you know, the, the feed and breed dynamics. And you go to the well and there's nothing there. Yeah. yeah. So before we get ahead of ourselves, because uh, I, I mean, I've read your book and I, I yeah. just want to make sure everyone like understands where we're coming from. Um, can you share uh, briefly, uh, I know in, in On Killing, one of your theses was that certain types of modern military training, 
I believe is what causes PTSD or, or increases the likelihood. Can you well, share a little bit about that? Yeah. In World War II, we found out the vast majority of the troops would not pull the trigger. And uh, it was a training flaw. They've been taught to shoot bullseyes. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and no known cases, any bullseyes ever attacking our troops on the battlefield. Uh, if, if you've been in the U.S. Armed Forces since the Korean War, never once shot a bullseye. A man-shaped silhouette pops you a field of view, shoot the target, target drops, stimulus response, stimulus response, like a pilot in a flight simulator, like a kid in a fire drill, modern training makes killing a condition response. And today, people will, will pull the trigger reflexively without conscious thought. They will save their lives. They will, they will achieve the victory, but they need to be prepared to live with what they've been conditioned to do. They, and oh, by the way, video games do the exact same thing to our children. The book right. came out in 1995, three years before Joan Pearl, four years before Columbine school massacres. I predicted these mass murders were coming. They're going to keep coming. They're not going to get, they're not going away. But just understand that the armed forces know how to make killing a condition response. We got to be prepared to live with what we've been trained to do. And, and yeah. that's a piece of the equation. Now, so, there, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just so I understand, uh, from what I understood back when I read it, um, it's the remorselessness of the killing training, which is what causes or leads to likelihood of PTSD. Is that right? Yeah, the absence of of being able to integrate the killing in a in a in a in a, in a useful way. Uh, you know, you you have the revulsion and then the backlash of remorse, and then you 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 deal with that and you come out the other end. But uh, you know what what I found is I dig in deeper, and this is important to understand is that most people have already done that. They prepared it. We're not committing atrocities. We're not committing mass murders. This is lawful killing, and, and there's dynamics in place that take care of the individual. And so there's kind of some myths about the veterans of this war. Be okay if we take a minute and dig into those myths? Yeah. You know, there, there's a, a normal response to, to the act of killing. Hunters experience something similar. Uh, first is the exhilaration of the kill, the adrenaline rush, and then you know, the hunter walks up to the dead creature, the, the, the cop, the, the military walks up to the person they just killed. And there's a, there's a backlash of remorse and nausea. And you, you, you have to deal with that. Hunter, you know, the hunter knows we're going to turn this into meat. We're going to feed my family. You know, it's going to be okay. And, and in combat with the rightful lawful killing, uh, most people are able to process it fairly easily. Uh, it is a part of the equation, but you know, uh, after the, uh, the Parkland School Massacre, I was contacted by this, this editor of a major newspaper. She said, I read your book on killing. I'm going to do an editorial based on your book about how all these people are going to buck guns. At the moment of truth, they're not going to be able to use them. If they do use them, they'll be destroyed based on your book. I said, ma'am, <laughs> need to reread the book. To take an 18-year-old kid, to draft him off the street, send him to a distant land, have him ambush some poor guy and do him no harm. That can be hard. It takes training. And for a tiny percentage, it can be traumatic. To use violence to protect your loved ones, that's what we're wired to do. Of all the violence you can engage in, violence to protect your loved ones, your home, your, your cave, your tribe. And if they came to you and they threatened you, that's something we could live with. And, 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 you know, of all the violence you can engage in, 
Uh, that's what we're wired to do, and it's the least traumatic thing that we can do. Hmm. And we have yeah. endless cases of people using self-defense, righteously protecting their loved ones, and the vast majority have no problem with it. What really tends to blow people's minds are things like auditory exclusion and tunnel vision, the slow motion time, and memory gaps. You know, uh, uh, we talk about the murder rates holding, being held down by medical technology. Look beneath the surface of things. The docs are saving never more lives. If we had World War II level medical technology, the murder rate would be at least 10 times what it is. We had 1970s level medical technology, the murder rate would be at least four times what it is. Tourniquets alone have probably cut the murder rate in half in just the last decade. 10 years ago, nobody carried a tourniquet. Today, every cop carries a tourniquet. EMS has it. Civilians like me carry them everywhere. Cop slaps on a tourniquet, saves a life, he's permitted to murder. At 20 to 30 people a day, slap on a tourniquet and save a life, we cut the murder rate in half. So uh, the so number you, completely misrepresent the problem. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I wanna go back a sec, uh, because uh, with uh, what you shared about, I mean, I think most people, even the most sheepish of people, I think yeah. would like to think if their loved ones were in danger, yes. they'd be able to pull the trigger, they'd be able to swing the hammer, stab the yeah. knife, whatever it is. Yeah. Is the issue with uh, modern warfare the scale? Because uh, you and many historians have mentioned how World War One changed the scale of battle by some yeah. huge exponential number. You no longer saw the person invading your homeland. You're in a distant land. Everyone's anonymous. You don't even know your buddies sometimes. Is that the issue with the psychological trauma of warfare? You know, it's kind of an interesting point that with the, the, the battle that we're in today in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've got a far smaller portion of our population. And they're not using airstrikes, and they're generally not using artillery, at least not effectively. And so it's a lot more uh, bringing us back to uh, 1800s type warfare, even earlier than that. Hmm. It's small groups who are finding and hunting down small groups. So you're right, this war, this war is profoundly different. This is not hundreds of thousands of people in the trenches. Uh, this is not waves of tens of thousands being mowed down. Uh, this is a totally different kind of war. And we're evolving that way. And on combat, I talk about the energy in the individual molecule. Think of the individual soldier as a molecule. You know, once upon a time, we were, we were, we were two uh, uh, blocks slamming against each other. Uh, and then the individual molecule gets up to a liquid, right? So now, in, instead of being a solid phase, we're liquid phase. And that's, that's a maneuver warfare and, and and World War I type cutting around around the enemy. And, and now the energy in the individual molecule, the one person can call in airstrikes, call in precision artillery. They, they, they've got enormous energy that they can direct. And we're able to fight the battle with far less troops. And they're calling in airstrikes and they're calling in artillery and they're maneuvering. And we feel what I call the gaseous phase, where we now have enough energy that the individual molecule is actually a gas. And we got three-dimensional battle. So we go from two-dimensional planes, solid warfare, slamming each other. We go to fluid warfare, the next phase, and then we go to the gaseous phase. And we're really at a totally different part of warfare today. And, and it's an environment in which a squad of people calling in airstrikes, calling in artillery, maneuvering and firing with enormous effectiveness can accomplish what once upon a time a battalion accomplished. We're fighting a war with far less people. Uh, it's the wars become more personal again. Yes, 
in, in many ways. But one of the things to understand, now there's, there's some real myths about our veterans that, that I'd like to confront up front. And, uh, you know, we've all heard 22 veterans a day take their life. And, and as best we can tell, that's probably accurate. But the word veteran and combat veteran are two different things. In World War I and then in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they drafted everybody. Elvis Presley was drafted. Elvis was a veteran. Most of these veterans are 70, 80, 90-year-old men. And, and one person called it self-euthanizing. You know, the, the suicide among our elderly is a very deep suicide everywhere has exploded. The new factors, sleep deprivation, creating impaired judgment, resulting in suicides worldwide exploding, teen suicides, twin age suicides. But 22 veterans a day is almost like a, a little anti-war myth that it's all from the current war. It's not. Okay. Only one or two of those 20, and one suicide is one too many, but only one or two of those 22 a day from the current war. The vast majority of our veterans, right? The veteran means anybody who served in the armed forces, are elderly old men. From back in the day, oh, that's interesting. huge armies yeah. and, and drafted everybody. So, yeah. they, and then, uh, you know, you hear people say, well, 8% of our prison population is veterans. Well, 24% of adult American males are veterans. Again, the idea that they're suicidal and homicidal, some do have problems. They deserve our help. But one other factor is PTSD. You know, I, I keep running into, I present at national, international psych conferences. Always some British psychiatrist. Well, you know, the, the British troops are running 5% PTSD. Why are the Americans so much higher? They're not. Go to the VA website, look up public health, PTSD in Iraq and Afghanistan. 16% of the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan have PTSD. 11% of the ones who didn't deploy have PTSD. About 5% contract PTSD. The British started their troops in Afghanistan. The Dutch started their troops in Afghanistan. We come, keep coming back to about 5%. 10% of the adult population has some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. You push the right button, and you get a post-traumatic response out of about 10% of the general population. Hmm. Those who have been to war are 5% more likely to have PTSD. So the idea that there are suicidal, homicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases is really a myth. The Vietnam veteran was called baby killer. They were spit on. They were attacked. It really did happen. Now the anti-war models differently. They're all damaged goods. They're all broken, destroyed. And that's not true. And, and we're good at treating PTSD. I worked with lone survivor, Marcus Dutrell. I trained his unit before the event and after the event. Uh, I, I talk about post-traumatic stress, like being overweight. Post-traumatic stress disorder is obese. We all kind of know the difference between overweight and obese, post-traumatic stress disorder is debilitating. I trained Marcus Utrell's unit. He went to Iraq. I got his permission to talk about him. His whole unit was wiped out. He was captured. He was tortured. Very bad things happened to that man. A year later, I trained in his unit. He wants to deploy again with his unit. He did. It was a good thing. And his doctor told me that Marcus Utrell, Navy SEAL, came back from that incident, and he was 500 pounds PTSD totally debilitated. Hmm. A year later, he was 50 pounds PTSD. And he was about to deploy in this unit. I said, look how far you've come in just the last year. Have confidence you can come farther. The and what were some of the helped. things that helped him go from the 500 to 50? Uh, yeah, well said. You know, yeah. one of it was to be in a constant safe environment. Hmm. You know, he's a twin. His twin brother was there with him constantly. 
and and one of the things that we do is is uh, is therapy. Uh, today, one of the major things we do with therapy is this, right? In a nutshell, PTSD is every time you talk about it, every time you think about it, you're up here in sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response. One of the tools to pull somebody from fight or flight to rest and digest is a big swig of water. Hmm. And a deer's being chased by a wolf. Deer's being chased by a wolf. Did you get a drink? He's really thirsty. I can't get a drink. I'm being chased by a wolf. The fact of taking a drink sends a powerful message from fight or flight to rest and digest. And, yeah. and, uh, and a friend of mine is one of our nation's leading therapists for federal law enforcement. And she talks about sitting down and talking about the event. And every time they become emotional, they take a big swig of water. She said, she told me, she said, six years of college. 14 years of practice, and that stupid bottle of water is the one more good thing I've ever done. Now, that's just one trick that Doc got in the bag. The breathing exercise I teach in my book is enormous. You don't always have a swig of water. You can always stop and take a breath. Uh, we're using food. You know, that lady I told you about has evolved now, the therapist. She now has a, a little fridge full of little individual servings of ice cream, every flavor. And they come and sit down. And she says, okay, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I, I, I don't have time for ice cream. I'm, Here, come on. What's your favorite? Go, I don't know. What, what's your favorite flavor? Come on, come on. Oh, all right. I like you know, uh, mint chocolate chip. Ah, I got that. She reaches in the fridge, grabs mint chocolate chip, pulls the lid off, shoves a spoon in, hands to the guy, grabs some for herself, said, now talk to me about what happened. Every time it starts to become emotional, have a bite. And, and, and so, you know, food, a drink of water, pulls us from fight or flight to rest and digest. Again, that doesn't always work. There's EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. Uh, you follow a visual stimulus while you're talking about it. Now, you know, I, I talk about the brain having two parts. You got the human brain and the dog brain laid right. on top of each other. When you become extremely frightened, the human brain shuts down and the dog brain hijacks the human brain. And, and so what happens is you re-experience the event. And, uh, and that swig of water, that, that food, that breathing brings us back down. But another trick, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming, you follow a visual stimulus. And while you're talking about the incident, and what happens is that the dog brain is busy. He's chasing a ball in the front <laughs> yard while the uh. human brain can talk about it and suddenly able to talk about these things without that dog brain reaching up and hijacking the human brain. So re-experience of the event is not PTSD. It's normal. How you deal with that will determine whether or not you get PTSD. And the goal yeah, is to separate the memory from the emotions. It sounds like the, the replaying is like your unconscious trying to work it out, but I guess just yes. in the right environment. Yes. Or and, and the worst the ice thing cream. you do is to not think about it. You mm. got to talk about it, you know, and talking over beer is really healthy. You know, you talk over beer and you start to become emotional. You take it, stop. Big swig of beer, regain control, and keep talking. Hmm. Physiologically, psychologically, just about the best thing you could possibly do until you get drunk, then it gets counterproductive. Right? Hmm. So these dynamics are in play. And, uh, and Marcus Luttrell today, 100% post-traumatic stress-free. Hmm. We're really good at treating PTSD. We get better every year. We have hundreds of thousands of cases we treat every year that recover fully. I trained a major SWAT team a while back. 
during the break, Kim said, hey, Colonel, the, the doc psyched this guy off the team. Now doc says, you okay, can we trust him? Yes, you can trust him. He's stronger of the incident. He's got a piece of paper says he's sane. You got one of those? So just understand that these dynamics of the trauma that comes out of combat, the vast majority are just fine. Indeed, they're stronger of the experience. A new greatest generates an horizon. Here we are in the middle of the uh, of this this this, this uh, uh, pandemic, and and I tell you that we can be made stronger by these things. You know, the depression and World War II created the greatest generation. 9/11 and this has the capacity to also create a great generation. People are empowered and strengthened by the experience. And uh, this, you know, it, it, uh, you know, Nietzsche said, "What does not kill me makes me stronger." Mm -hmm. He stole that from the Bible. 2,000 years ago, right. the Bible said the same thing. Romans chapter 5, we glory in tribulation. For tribulation work of patience, patience experience, experience him, hope, and hope maketh not a shame. So just understand that all these bad things in life, if we follow that archetypal model of, of the protector, and if we focus our energies in that direction, A, when the bad things happen, we're far less likely to be shattered by it. And B, we're far better able to handle it in the event and after the event. We know the world can be a dangerous place. We know bad things can happen. When they happen, we're not destroyed. We're, we're, we're ready for it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. I want to ask you about uh, some of, something related um, because yeah. you, you shared a lot about video games. And yeah. I was actually appalled that you shared about the Paducah shooter who trained by video games and got eight out of eight headshots. I was yeah. like, I was yeah. shocked. And yeah. um, with uh, young men, uh, video games and pornography yes. are uh, yes. on the rise. Um, male suicide is high. There's something yes. related to like the sex and violence and young men. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that yeah. because obviously technology is new. Video games didn't exist yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. But also, I, I, I mean, I'm a 30-year-old guy, so I only know what I know. But well, it seems like pre pre previous generations had real challenges that most men had to yes. face, where maybe now we have to look for them yes. and simulate them. I'm wondering what you had, what, what thoughts you had yeah. on these trends. You, know, you really put your finger on, on a key dynamic. But another, if we peel the layers of the onion, the next layer down is the sleep deprivation that's involved with this. The video games are designed to put us in a, what's called a flow state. We become incapable of keeping track of time. We've all been there. Suddenly, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Got no idea where the last six hours went. And, 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 and here's the key concept. 18 hours without sleep and your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep, and you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School will tell about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we're in the middle of a worldwide epidemic of sleep deprivation, social media, cell phones, and, and at the core of it, these incredibly, incredibly addictive video games. Right now, 200 million people are online playing the game. We do this, and 0.05% say, ah, oh, time to save the game and quit. So they never do that again. We do this, absolutely nobody quits. They do more of that. It is truly a computer-driven algorithm with hundreds of millions of data points that, that designs the game that's impossible to turn off. I tell the old-timers, all the old-timers, you remember Tetris? You know, think Tetris on steroid with cracks. 
we're cracked. And, and, and each generation becomes more addictive. Research tells us 15% of all divorces in America, video games are the cause. 15% wow. video games are the cause. So what I tell people is this. There's nothing wrong with adults playing any game unless it gets away from your sleep or your health or your family or your job. You've got to recognize that this game is going to put me in a flow state. To show up to work sleep-deprived is not acceptable for an adult who accepts responsibility. Playing games all night long and going to work is not acceptable. And again, just like pornography, it can completely drain the well. And then when you need these resources, they're not there, but you end that sleep deprivation. So in the active duty military, our suicides have nothing to do with combat. A non-combat vet is like to take the life as a combat vet. But some of the research tells us a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. Taking your life is not a natural act. You have to have profoundly impaired judgment to kill yourself. And alcohol and suicide has always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision, you have a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. Teen suicides with tweeners, they call them teenagers, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Teenage girls' suicide rate per capita is tripled in just the last decade. So here's parenting 101 for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. No laptop in the room, no cell phone in the room. They've got to go to the room and sleep. A cop came up to me on a break for one of my presentations. He said, I had a good girl. He said, she was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. So I trust her. I'll let her keep her cell phone. He said, he said, a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. He says, I understood my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now is that she was sleep deprived and tormented and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen. He says, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How, how can I expect your kids to? He said, the one thing on earth I could have done for my little girl was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off the bad stuff in this world, and get a good night's sleep. So just recognize this dynamic. Traffic deaths, decade after decade, traffic deaths have come down, airbags, seatbelts, and now traffic deaths are back up again. There's a reason why airline pilots and truck drivers are required by law to get enough sleep. So with our cops, the two greatest killers of our cops, suicide and traffic deaths. And if we gave a damn about it, the place we'd be focusing our energies is sleep management. So the third major cause of death that has exploded is drug overdoses. Just taking drugs is impaired judgment, but taking drugs when you are sleep deprived, but also the opiate epidemic. Why opiates? There are many different drugs out there. Prescription opiates have always been there. Why are they suddenly the drug of choice worldwide? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The tendons of muscle never get a chance to fully relax. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill of pigs. You don't need a pill. You need more sleep. I need to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch because the caffeine stops us from getting deep cycle sleep. That's when the tendons of muscles fully relax. If you don't get sleep and if you don't get deep cycle sleep, 
you get chronic pain. And so sleep management is absolutely essential. And here's the key concept. Sleep is a biological blind spot. Our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep because it always happened naturally. Throughout history, right. for untold thousands of years, every night it got dark. It was dark and there was nothing to do. You had so much talking, so much sex, you went to sleep. Then Tommy has said, invent the light bulb, the television, the video game. Suddenly we go 24 seven and our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep. Our bodies are pretty good at getting air, food, water. Ever think how good the body is getting the right amount of food? How much extra food would a kid have to eat to put on one extra pound a month? If a kid puts on one pound a month, by the time he's 10, he's 120 pounds overweight. So as we get older, it gets harder. Our bodies are pretty good at getting air, food, water. Our bodies are incompetent at making us get enough sleep. We got to make it happen. We got to manage our sleep like we manage our money. And, and one thing that is incredibly valuable is the Fitbit, some kind of a sleep tracker. I think the Fitbit Charge 3 is best. Uh, it's waterproof, wear it in the shower, wear it in the pool. It'll track your heart rate. Really interesting to see where your heart rate was in the middle of sex. It will track your <laughs> calories. It will track your steps. And it will track your sleep and your cycles of sleep. It will rock your world. You download the app. You wear the wrist. You pull up the app. And it will tell you, you need seven to eight hours sleep a night as an adult. You've been getting five hours of sleep for the last three months. You're killing yourself. Stop doing that stuff. Huh. And we got to manage our sleep. I want to ask you about uh, sleep and uh, stress inoculation. Because um, So I did a PLC split program in OCS. So I did six weeks yeah. in 07 and then six weeks yeah. in 09. Yeah. And in 07... Uh, sleep deprivation was part of the training. In fact, the battalion commander would say, like, we're purposely sleep depriving you because it makes you more scared and you have to deal with that fear. And that made sense. We were, yeah. I was basically almost hallucinating. I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah. We had nights yeah. without sleep and whatnot. Uh, but in 09, it was um, completely different. Like, we actually got nap time. Uh, yeah. Before, before like, the 18 milers, we would always have to sleep an extra two hours. Yeah. I'm wondering if, like, did research come out in 2008 or something that, that shifted yeah. the military training? It's just is a steady lab? evolution, the steady evolution of us understanding how critical sleep is to our wellness. But uh, there's a th something there that, that they weren't wrong the first time, but we're a little bit smarter the second time. In particular, if you're going to be to the range, if you're going to do anything dangerous, then we demand that they get a good night's sleep the night before. So then mm -hmm. uh, that's the rule throughout our armed forces. Now we can sleep deprive you, but if you're going to do something dangerous, like going to the range and having weapons or mountain climbing and ranger school, we made sure they got enough sleep. So something to understand here is uh, you cannot train your body to get by unless sleep. You know, in ranger school, it went days without sleep and days without food. Ranger school didn't teach me to, that I don't need food. Your body needs needs fuel. And if, if, the, if the body runs out of fuel, the car runs out of gas, it stops. But you'd be amazed how long you can go before you have to refill the tank. And you've gone two days without food and two days without sleep, and you're still going. You haven't trained your body to get by on less food. But if somewhere down the line, you're in a traumatic event, you don't get food, you don't get sleep, the little monkey brain doesn't panic. We all got that little monkey brain, hmm. that little dog brain back there. And there, you had no sleep and no food. And it panics, no food, no food, no sleep. We've never been here before. This is not good. 
But if you've been there before, and you can be psychologically inoculated. So don't, don't think that you are able to perform some Superman feat of going without food. But what you are able to do is control your mental response to going without food and not panic. And you control your mental response to going without sleep and not panic. But understand that you are a time of great risk when you're sleep deprived, you're impaired judgment. Suicides, traffic deaths, drug overdoses are all strongly related to sleep deprivation. So we choose the time like for our own personal training. We, we, we go a day without food and a day without sleep. And for spiritual reasons, there's value in fasting. But nobody should know but you and maybe your ranger buddy or your partner, right? And you go to work and you go a day without food and a day without sleep. And, uh, and, 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 and you realize I can do this. I have control of my body. Now, I, I can't train my body to get by on less air. I can't train my body to get by on less fluids. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, Navy SEALs are trained not to go without air, but to not panic when they don't have air. You'll put these, uh, you'll put our divers in any of our dive schools underwater, and they rip their hose off, and they make them do something, usually knots, you know, doing tying knots underwater. And they're running out of air. And you and I hit that point, we're out of air, and we'll panic and maybe breathe in air, but they won't. They'll keep doing it right up till the minute they lose consciousness. Now, they haven't trained their body to get by unless air. They trained their body to not panic until the body absolutely runs out of air and they lose consciousness. Do you understand? Yeah, and we, this reminds me of an interesting point you had in uh, on combat on how uh, trainers should teach uh, the soldiers not to die like when you get hit which i thought was so fascinating because i I mean i can i mean i haven't been in combat but i can imagine or i've played combat sports and so much of winning and losing sometimes is is just deciding that you won or lost like you see this in wrestling all the time and um yeah i was curious if you you could share a little bit on that you know when we do our force on force engagements uh airsoft paintball these are good good things for developing our skills um it's called reality-based training and there's reality. You get hit and it hurts. Now, you know, if you're going to do airsoft, wear eye protection. You're not going to do paintball, wear the mask. And I would just, we're going to do this intelligently. But, uh, but what happens is we do force-on-force engagements. But simunition is where we fire a real bullet out of a real gun. What leaves a barrel is not a chunk of lead, but a plastic marking capsule. It's going 350, 400 feet per second. It hits you in the hand. It hurts. It hurts a lot. So firefighters have to encounter real Bernie Alley fire and training. We can't train a firefighter for a lifetime with flickering lights, uh, uh, you know, and red tissue paper and a fan. And, and, and we've got to encounter real Bernie Alley bullets to prepare for a, a real gunfight. And what happens is uh, we tell people, we don't train you to die. We don't give permission to fail. Oh, I've been shot. I'm dead. No, you're not. Officer Jennifer Fulford shot 10 times, killed the two best shotter. It's only fair back on the job six months later. You understand? Mm-hmm. So we, we can survive if we just stop the next bullet. And, and, and we don't give people permission to die. We train people to keep going. And, and so this is a form of stress inoculation there. But you really hit something important about combat training and combat sports. In, a, in any healthy play, bang, bang, I got you. He said, no, you didn't. You smacked with your cap gun. 
and it leaves a mark and he cries. Everybody gather around the hurt kid and try to convince him not to tell mom. Somebody gets hurt, the play stops. A basketball game, a football game, one of the players gets hurt, the play stops. In the video game, you blow your playmates heads off and explosions of blood. Does the play stop? You get in trouble. You get points. This is pathological plays. This is dysfunctional play. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with adults playing any game unless it gets away of your sleep or your life. You decide what's important. Is my life important or is this game important? There's nothing wrong with playing the game. Set a timer. Play the game for an hour or two. Ding, the timer goes off. Use your steely warrior discipline. Save the game and move on. I play a major, massive, metamorphic online orgasmic game. You can't do a thing an hour or two a night. It's cool. It's cool. Decide now what's important. Is your health important? Is your spouse important? Your children important? Your job important? Is, game, is, is, is your responsibility as an adult important? Or is that game what's really important? Because that's cool. If the game is really important, here's what you do. Quit your job right now. Move into your parents' basement. Draw unemployment. Buy a Johnny economy-sized bag of Cheetos. Play video games all night long. Millions of people are doing that. But you want to have a life. You want to uphold your responsibility as a spouse, as, as a worker, to your, your fellow, and to your employees, and to your society. You got to get those games under control. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that's hard for, uh, for younger people is when, I mean, I think most young men going through puberty have an impulse, obviously, to yes. have yeah. sex. But they also have an impulse to fight battles or hunt yeah. or something, and it's yeah. just not available. And if they're a loser in school or they perceive yeah. themselves yeah. to be, yeah. the video game world is just more fun and real. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think yeah, that's, that's one what, of the challenges. It is, because when, you're, when your virtual world is more fun than the real world, and there's nothing wrong with that. And you, you read. You know, I know there's nothing wrong with reading. You escape in a good book every night. There's nothing wrong with that. You escape in a video game. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you read all night long and show up to work sleep deprived, it's not acceptable. And if you play in that game all night long and you show up to work sleep deprived, that's not acceptable. So most of us, we read. We'll read for an hour, maybe no more than an hour at night. We'll read and we'll go to bed. But the video games trap you. And you got to have that discipline that says, no, a good night's sleep is also critically important. And, and understand, especially with kids, that the video game is pathological play. It's dysfunctional play. Bang, bang, I got you. Somebody gets hurt, the play stops. But now you inflict pain and suffering on your, on your opponent, and you get points. And what we're really doing is, yes, we're raising killers. All of these killers have played these games. We're also raising bullies, people who have been taught to take pleasure from inflicting suffering on others. And so we, as much as we can, healthy play. You know, I talked to a guy a little while back. He said, you know, here we are in, a, in this pandemic. You know, we're, we're in our home with my kids. We're doing a lot of neat things. We get up every morning. We do PT. He said, but, you know, I, 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 you know, we do martial arts. He said, how can I train them that, you know, firearm skills? I can't go to the range. I said, man, go to Walmart. Walmart's still open. Buy Nerf guns. Buy, buy, buy airsoft guns. Wear hearing protection, wear, wear eye protection, rather, and, uh, and practice your, your engagements with the kids. You know, slicing the pie and, 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 and airsoft games. And when one of the kids gets hurt, oh, dad, that hurt. Hey, we'll stop the game for a minute. You know, what did we learn here? You know, that hurts. And, and, and that's healthy play. So, you know, rather than the video game, you and your kids play with dark guns. And, you know, I, my kids, I got, I, I got teenage grandchildren now. But when my kids were, were little... 
uh, they learned never point a gun at grandpa within arm's reach. We always had dark guns and nerf guns. Action, reaction. If it's within reach, you can take that gun away before they pull the trigger every time. When I was younger, I was really more intensely into the martial arts. I could kick the gun out of their hand before they pull the trigger every time. And now I'm not so good at kicking anymore, but I can still do that disarm within arm's reach. Now, my grandkids all know, never point a gun at grandpa within arm's reach. They'll take it away every time before you can pull the trigger. Dark guns, nerf guns, airsoft, they don't matter. Action, reaction, take that gun away before they pull the trigger. What did they learn at a young age? Keep your distance. When you've got a gun, distance is our friend. You understand? And, and, and so we, we learn these skills in a, in a, in a healthy way. And you and your kids clearing the room and with your airsoft guns, with your, with your Nerf guns. We got Nerf gun battles in the house and we learn to use cover and movement. You know, these are good things. This is healthy play. Playing video games all night long, being sleep deprived, learning to take pleasure from inflicting death and suffering. Time out. For adults in controlled amounts, not a bad deal. For children, obsessively day after day, this is not good. And we can do a better job for our kids. We can focus on healthy play. Yeah. So is the video game thing, because like uh, I'm sure uh, you didn't really comment on, on uh, like differences between genders, but certainly there have never been uh, little, uh, young girls who shot up schools. That, well, there so has. Very, oh, there has. There okay. Has. Yeah, there have been a few. They're, they're, they're considerably rare. Uh, there have been a few. There was one in San Diego who shot up a uh, elementary school uh, across the street from her house. No. Uh, shot a lot of kids, two dead. Uh, but yes, they are quite rare. You're exactly right. You know, it's almost gotcha. the exception that proves the rule. The rule. Uh, yeah. And there's been a lot of question about why that is. You know, is it testosterone poisoning? Uh, is it, uh, you know, is it role model focusing? Well, there's a lot involved in that. But again, yeah. boys are inclined to actual violence. Girls are much more inclined to bullying, vicious bullying. And and girls can take away from this something different. They're more inclined to some really vicious bullying dynamics and pathological relationship dynamics. Uh, no, boys and girls have to be given healthy models and healthy play. You were saying, go ahead. Yeah, but with all these, like whether it's emotional bullying or, or actual violence, uh, it's not that video games teach it out of thin air it's like there's something in our wiring that is prone and, I, and you did yeah. speak uh in both of your books about yeah. like like ego bravery versus i forget oh, yeah. the terms you use yeah. but versus yeah. like actual a sense yeah. of duty but I, yeah. even like there's like i i enjoy first person shooter yeah. games like there's yeah. something there's something rewarding when you make the hit or, or anything like that yeah. i'm wondering uh what your thoughts are on like we do have like a primal impulse it's yeah. possible to enjoy yeah. killing or violence like what's the deal oh, with that yeah you know the, the, the critical thing here is there are predisposing factors a friend of mine wrote a book inside the mind of a teen killer a terribly important book phil chalmers and um, and he studied hundreds of these teen killers and every single one of them have been obsessed with the video games but but what he says is that there's there's millions who are obsessed with video games who didn't kill. So he's got how to create a teen killer in 10 easy steps. All the old problems are still there. Broken families, access to weapons, uh, bullying. All the old factors are still there. And they're still important. But you start stacking up the old factors and you add one new factor, the video games. And it's a tipping point that pulls it over the top. 
sorry, every one of these, I'm talking hundreds of these teen killers, everyone is ever interviewed is, is obsessed with the violent movies, violent television shows, and violent video games. And again, there's millions of people like that, only a tiny handful kill. But what you've done is you've created a tipping point. You have added one more factor to the equation. It's a factor we can do something about. But there is within us a desire for a righteous battle. And, uh, and, and that, 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 that whole dynamic of seeking that role model. And that's why our, our Sheepdog Kids book, we got uh, Sheepdogs. It's a children's book, Meet America's Heroes. And it talks about channeling your energy as a protector. There are wolves. And, and there are sheep. They're healthy people. But, but they've got little capacity for violence. Then there's a wolf who will feed on the sheep. And the sheepdog mm-hmm. is the one who will protect the sheep. And, mm-hmm. and that talks about being a sheepdog. And it talks about the, the sheep will die to protect the ones they love. Only a sheepdog loves enough to die for other people's loved ones. Sometimes yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. A, a wolf and a sheepdog are certainly more similar. It's just uh, one has empathy oh, yeah. and the other yeah, doesn't. It's a thin right? line. Is that? Because yeah. you know, some this of the triad, stories you shared in your book, oh, go ahead. So when we take this uh, triad, the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog, everybody is somewhere in between. There's a line between the wolf and the sheepdog. There's a line between the sheepdog and the sheep. And everybody's somewhere along that continuum. You know, like three, a triad, and you can place yourself somewhere within that triad. You know, you're over here, heavy sheep, heavy sheepdog, in between sheepdog and wolf. And and if you're in between sheepdog and wolf, there's nothing wrong with that. But you want to feed the sheepdog and not the wolf. You want to (laughs) nurture that protection, protection. And stay away from that evil dynamic of the of the sheepdog and, and move yourself of, of the wolf. You want to stay away from the wolf and 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 feed the sheepdog. You want to move in that direction. Embrace the role of a protector. Yeah, you were saying. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting because in uh, many uh, uh, killer detective fictional yeah. movies, uh, yeah. a lot of the times the theme is that the detective and the killer are actually very similar. One just happened to be on the police force. The other one just happened yeah. to be. One has chosen to be on the police force and the right. other has chosen to be a criminal. And so that's where the major line is. In the end, I control my body. My body doesn't control me. I control my life, whether it's orgasm control or, 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 or other dynamics. The whole thing is to become the master of your body and your mind. I control my body. I control my mind. And it's a lifelong process. I'm 63 years old, and I'm still getting better every day at being a better person, at, at controlling my anger, at controlling my, 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 my dynamics. As we get older and older, we get better and better as people. We should strive to constantly be better people. And, and you know, uh, as a sheepdog, I, I'm, I'm invested in the martial art of the firearms called hujutsu. And one thing we know is we'll grow old and we'll grow fat. But we can still be one hell of a shot, and uh, you know. And uh, I'm too old to 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 engage deeply in the martial arts anymore. But I'm a hell of a shot, you know. And uh, I'm too old to take an ass whooping, you know. Just it's coming right down to gunfight, right up front for me, you know. But uh, but you know, it, uh, what what I keep talking to people is look beneath the surface of things. Look beneath the surface of killing. The surface of combat. That's what my books are about. Uh, you know, that the murder rate completely misrepresents the situation. Medical technology holding down the murder rate, boom, we all accept that automatically. But why, why, why didn't we know that? There's things beneath the surface. And I tell you, the one that's my model is the necktie. 
you know, the, the necktie, it, it starts down at your crotch. It goes up your neck. It's got a big knob on top. It's a dick. It really <laughs> is. And you get a big red power tie. And I tell my cops, I say, you and your partner knock on the front door. You're detectives. You're wearing a suit. You know, you got your dick on. And the guy answers the door. And the monkey brain says, ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and it works. There's a reason why the necktie has been in fashion for 100 years. Fashions come and go. The necktie stayed in fashion. It works. But, you know, and women almost never wear a necktie. When they do, it's demeaning. Like a waitress or something, they wear a necktie. It's demeaning. The monkey brain looks at a woman with a necktie and says, huh? And, and, and so understand that what's going on here. And I want to get credit for being the first one to say, dude, why are we wearing these dicks? You know, <laughs> and I tell you, a hundred years from now, they will look at photographs of the president wearing the big red power tie and they'll laugh at him. Said, didn't they understand what they were doing? Didn't they understand? They're all wearing dicks. Why are they doing this? They, couldn't they see it? No, they couldn't see it. So yeah. look at the surface of things. And, and, and I, I tell you, I didn't get this from anybody. I want credit for being the first one that says, why are we wearing these dicks? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I visited the house and I was wearing my little cowboy spring tie, you know, because a cowboy, you don't play that game. See, and the guy with the bow tie, he said, I'm not playing the game. I, and, and, and we all go to dinner, right? We put our tuxedos on, put our tuxedos on. We all put our bow tie on. It says, we're going to be chill. We're at Suave and Duboner here. We're going to set aside you know, the, the whole dick game, and we're all going to agree. And, you know, somebody shows up with a tie. Everybody else is wearing a bow tie at dinner. It's incredibly out of place. And, again, that, that, that little string tie that the cowboy wears says, man, I'm not playing your game. <laughs> I got my dick right here, you know, the old pistol, yeah. But uh, uh, just look beneath the surface of things. That's what my books are about. And uh, my newest book will be out any day now. It's called uh, On Spiritual Combat. You know, the, a lot of people can recognize there is a force for evil in this world. Then you are helpless in fighting that force for evil if you do not tap into force for good. Unspiritual combat comes from a traditional Christian perspective, but it really is a powerful tool. And, and the, the, the mechanisms our ancestors used to fight evil, if there is a God, it, it, they haven't changed you know, across the years. And, and the mechanisms that have been used across the centuries continue to be of value in this spiritual warfare. So it's all about digging deeper, looking beneath the surface, but, but choose to be a sheepdog and not a wolf. Choose to be a yeah. protector. I think one of the things coming out of this whole dynamics of the, of the pandemic is our understanding deep in our soul. The cops are not always going to be there. The government cannot always protect you. You have to accept responsibility for protecting yourself and protecting your loved ones. Does it mean going to martial arts? Does it mean being in good physical condition? Does it mean carrying pepper spray? If you're in the right place with the right training, does it mean carrying a gun? I can't tell you what's right for you. But I can tell you, everybody is ready to move further up that scale of preparation. And that comes back to you and this podcast. The world is going to need what you have to give. The world is going to come to you and people like you, seeking wisdom, seeking knowledge. And, and, and this idea of tapping into that primal, archetypal model of, of a positive masculine protector sheepdog model what you're doing is very powerful stuff and you need to believe in it and all the people who are working with you need to understand and believe in what you're doing so is that all thank you sense? yeah for sure uh yeah you uh you mentioned so many things i want to ask you about them yeah. all but i'll go backwards um 
Because on the civilian front, I mean, your books uh, reference uh, police officer experiences and, and uh, war combat experiences, but I'm sure most of the people who read them will not have experiences like that. But any of us could have an assailant try to enter our home or anything like that. Uh, yes. Maybe unlikely, but it can happen. And I, I, when I listen to the, the stories in your book, I, I, I always wonder, and even with, uh, I didn't choose to go to the Marines. I think that was the right yeah. choice, but I still always wonder what I would yeah. be like under yeah. fire because I, I can't yeah. know. What do you suggest to civilians? Well, you know, the same thing applies across the board. I'll give you an example now. The thing is, it's easy to get these, these narratives from military and law enforcement. It's harder to get it from civilians. Over the years, I've collected quite a few. But I'll give you a great example. Now, cops have better tactics, better training, better body armor. Cops have better technology, saving lives. When we talk about cops murdered, the best measure is what I call the year-over-year -year increase in cops murdered. And 2016 was the worst year-over-year -year increase in cops murdered in history. Five cops murdered in one incident in Dallas, four cops murdered in Baton Rouge. It was just the tip of the iceberg. We also had bad guys going to the cops' house to murder their family. But mama bear protecting her cubs can be one of the most dangerous things on the planet. And the cop's wife killed this guy, game over. And she told me I had no problem killing that guy to protect my family. And women very seldom are troubled by having to kill, because when women do it, they do it in a powerful protective mode. But she said, I heard the audio recording of my 911 call. And to this day, I have no memory making that call. It was even me alive. And then somebody gave me a book on combat, page 55. Look, it's normal. Half of all trained seasoned cops have memory gaps. Boom, she was fine. She was just fine. Psychologists call it normalizing. It's too trivial a term for something so powerful. She, 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 she heard the audio recording of a 911 call. She doesn't remember doing it. We're driving her crazy. We show her, it's normal. And she was fine. So all of these dynamics also apply every bit as much in a civilian life and death event. It can be a fist fight. You know, it, it can be uh, somebody trying to mug you and, and your heart rate is running and then you re-experience the event the next day and that's normal and, and gross from warmly that might happen. And one of the most important things is the breathing exercise. I, I have files organized by topic of emails and case studies and the breathing exercise has saved the most lives, has had the greatest impact. Uh, a lady who's intubated and she's, she's gasping and, and she's, she's, she's having trouble controlling herself and she writes on a notepad and hands her to her president and says, Grossman, breathing. <sighs> the breathing exercise Grossman taught us. And he starts coaching her. All right, in through the nose, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four. Out through the lips, two, three, four. And she regains control. Now, just three weeks ago, I got an email from a guy. He said, you know, I went to Iraq, saw a lot of combat, having a little difficulty coming home and shrugging it off. You're doing a lot of adventure training, mountain climbing, adventure training. Up on a camp high on a glacier in a mountain glacier. And I get up at night disoriented. And I'm just wandering around. I didn't have crampons to stay on the ice. I didn't have proper equipment. I'm getting up in the night disoriented. And I remembered you. I heard your voice say, breathe in through the nose, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four. He said, I heard your voice. I used my breathing and I realized I was just about two steps from walking off a cliff. And the breathing literally saved my life. So these are non-combat experiences of people being able to apply these dynamics, whether it's a, an intruder in your home, whether it's a, waking up in the middle of the night disoriented and walking off a cliff, 
the breathing exercise, the, the predisposing factors, the the inoculation dynamics, they all apply across the board. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many uh, fascinating, I didn't, I didn't know, I, mean, I was aware of tunnel vision and uh, I was aware of the pant wetting and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. this, uh, one, I forget what the term was, but uh, I think over 145 beats per minute, a lot of people lose their ability to move yeah. unilaterally. Well, about 180. Yeah, 180, losing okay. the ability to move unilaterally. Uh, about, and, and, and it's very important. I tell people, a lot of us have done exercise, get our heart rate up really high, and your face is generally flushed. You have a darker complexion, not quite so obvious. Having everybody, your face is flushed. But when the heart rate is pounding and your face goes white, again, if you have a darker complexion, not quite so obvious. But what's happening is vasoconstriction. So exercise-induced heart rate can be a totally different dynamic than, than fear or adrenaline-induced heart rate. So we can kind of stimulate it with exercise. We can create our heart pounding and, and perform actions under those circumstances, and that's a good thing. But it's all the difference in the world. I use a photograph in my class of uh, Christopher Amoroso coming down from the World Trade Center on 9-11. On his second trip down, he's carrying, practically carrying this pregnant woman down. Just Google Christopher Amoroso and, and look at the images of him carrying that woman down. Her face is beet red. His face is bone white. You take a blow to the left cheekbone, you see that left cheekbone is, is, uh, is red. On the other side of the head, it's a pretty bad cut. He's been burned. And, and, and what I tell people is their heart rate could be exactly the same. The impact on their body is exactly the opposite. Her face mm -hmm. is beet red. His face is bone white. So it's adrenaline-induced. We can simulate it with exercise, and that's a good drill. You know, get your heart rate up and then perform those combat actions, whatever they may be, and while your heart's pounding. And, and that's good. But don't fool yourself into thinking it's exactly the same as a life-and-death event. And, yeah. And two different dynamics. Yeah. But you're right. When it's exercise-induced heart rate above about 180 beats per minute, you really begin to get some catastrophic dynamics. And one of the things, as you, as you say, is uh, at very high levels, what we end up doing is we end up doing, uh, 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 we lose the, the capability to do something with just one hand. And, and you know, your, your, your ability to, to, to draw and fire a weapon, unless you've drilled it, drilled it. And we don't just hold the gun out, we punch it out with two hands. And there we're tapping into the dynamic of both arms working together. Uh, and even under extreme stress, that, that skill becomes more available. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I guess that makes sense because if you're, fighting a bear or something. You don't yeah, need to yeah. do separate complicated things. Yeah, I was curious about that. And I share that with my girlfriend because we both train jujitsu and she's actually been oh. training a little bit longer than me. Oh. But um, she, uh, she, and she's very technically proficient, but she's yeah. the victim of sexual assault from her past. And yeah. she has, she goes into panic anytime she's yeah. sparring with a, a bigger man. Like she forgets yeah. what she's doing. Her hands end up doing the same thing. And I share that from her, from the book uh, with, with her because yeah. um. There, there, I mean, there must be some stress response. I was wondering if you had oh, thoughts on how to example. get over yeah. that. Yeah. How's she been? Is she able to overcome that? Is she making progress? She's making progress, but I think she's frustrated because she practices very well. But when yeah. she's stressed and rolling with a strong yeah. person, she goes into panic mode and then well, forgets this is good. what she's so, doing. So this is a great opportunity to bring her to a higher level. You know, stop, take a swig of water, or stop and breathe. And through the nose, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out through the lips, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, now do it. When you see her starting to get in that panic mode, just have her stop, breathe, 
regain control and do it. Remember, never send a loser off your training site. Do whatever you have to do to make her be successful, whether it's be very slow, whether it's complying with her, and then put further and further along and build up. It's a perfect example where you can apply all these techniques to bring her to a higher level overcome. And, and what you're looking at, to a certain degree, can become a post-traumatic response. She's re-experiencing the event of fighting somebody stronger with her. She's, her heartbeat goes up. She loses control. Well, and again, it is not necessarily PTSD. It can become PTSD over time. So what you do is you work your way through that. You stop, take a swig of water, stop and breathe, freeze in place, breathe and regain control. Great opportunity to be able to apply all these things to, to bring her to a, to a greater level of, uh, of, 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 of wellness to control this dynamic and come out the other end stronger. Does that, does yeah. that all make sense? Yes, yeah, that's fascinating. Are you familiar with the winner effect? Have you heard of that yeah. term? Tell me, tell me more about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's when someone perceives that they won uh, a, a challenge, uh, their testosterone yeah. dopamine spike up, but they also develop more receptors in their nervous system for testosterone. Yeah. So yeah. like winning can compound in that way. And yeah. it was interesting because you shared basically that idea when you're speaking about the semunition training, you never want to train dying right. uh, or anything yeah. like that. And it's, it's interesting because this keeps coming up, I think, in culture. Like um, I had uh, Brett Jones who teaches uh, the kettlebell kettlebell training and yeah. their philosophy is the same you don't train till failure because you don't want to practice failure uh, wow. so it's, it's yes. interesting that yes. this is kind of an uh, across the board principle it yes. seems to be true yeah. all right and, and and again there's a winning effect there's also a losing effect we right. see teams getting a slump we see teams getting trapped in the slump and uh and, and we, then they know what's happening they're just having trouble breaking that cycle so uh you know like i said never try never to send a loser off your training site working with your girlfriend there you know, never let her lose. Try to let her win. Try to continue to, to evolve and move along with these dynamics. Give her winning situations and build her confidence and steadily, gradually uh, allow her to, to overcome this. You've really done three quarters of the job. You've identified the problem. Now, solving the problem is the easy part. <laughs> you know what to do. You know how to do it. And, and, and later on, you know, tell me how that worked out. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, I'll shoot you a message. It's just such a beautiful example to use all the things that you teach and that I teach to bring another human being to a higher state of wellness, Mm -hmm. to overcome that that sympathetic nervous system response and to allow her to have deeper levels of control. And what it means is I now control my body. My body doesn't control me. That's one of the greatest achievements we can give anybody. The breathing, the swig of water. My body doesn't control me. I control my body. You know, it comes back to sleep. The snooze alarm is not our friend. The first act of every day to hit the snooze alarm is surrender to your body. Or it's the first act of every day to roll out of bed and take charge of your body. You know, give your kid a marshmallow. So you need this marshmallow right now. But I'll be back in three minutes for another one. You don't need it. Have them both. That is one of the greatest predictors of success in life. It's called self-control. Right. Hitting the snooze alarm is the opposite of self-control. I tell people, I'm in charge of my body. Muhammad Ali, boxer, great champion. He said, championship began every day, the alarm went off. He hated running so bad, he put his running shoes on top of the alarm. The alarm went off, he grabbed his running shoes, that champion willpower. And so this, this whole dynamic of, of I'm in charge of my body, I tell people, don't touch that, that snooze alarm. Do some research. You're actually doing harm to your body as your body tries to learn to fall into deep cycle sleep in 10 minutes. 
set, set 10 alarms, six o'clock, six o'clock, six. By the time you're turn off, all those alarms are up. And the you that goes <laughs> to bed at night is going to make you to get up in the morning, get out of bed. So from the crack of dawn, when the alarm goes off, we, we continue to strive to say, I control my body. My body didn't control me. Does that video game trap you? Are you up until three o'clock in the morning? Well, you, you've let that game control you. I control my body, right? You let that yeah. game control you. You set a time, you set aside time for sleep and, and you, you become control of your environment. If the video game traps you, then you need to overcome that and be able to do it as an adult in measured amounts that don't, don't, don't eat into your, your sleep time, don't eat into your work time, eat into your life. Sleep-deprived people will do things and say things to regret for the rest of their life. Sleep-deprived people, we're not the parent we want to be. We're not the spouse we want to be. We're not the boss or the employee we want to be when we're sleep-deprived. So the ultimate dynamic of controlling our body comes back to the one thing we do every night, is that little vacation at the end of every day is sleep. Guard your sleep, protect your sleep. Use caffeine. It's a great reminder. Yeah, cut off caffeine shortly after lunch. And remember, chronic pain, sleep deprivation, and caffeine abuse, these are major factors in chronic pain. Uh, cut down on the caffeine after lunch. Just cut off caffeine after lunch. Start getting a good seven, eight hours sleep every night and watch that chronic pain go away. And watch your quality of life vastly improve as you focus on controlling your body and striving for wellness and, and having that whole full life that we all desire. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, I know you, you reference stoicism in, in your books uh, quite a bit. I mean, a lot of this is discipline and creating order where there is none, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about some of the, you touched on the spiritual side of combat. Um, yeah. I, I have a couple questions on that. One, one is a, a bit of an ethical question yeah. um, because when you frame it as good and evil, I think most of us can identify. Of course, we want to be on the side of good and yeah. combat evil. But I was, uh, I was listening to a, an interview with Dakota Meyer, who, who was a yeah. Medal of Honor recipient. Yeah. And he was yeah. sharing about how, I think it was after he had just killed uh, an enemy with a rock or something. And he yeah. was sharing how he had no, he actually like felt bad for the person because this guy, we call him a terrorist, but he's, he's a warrior too, doing the best yeah. he knows how to do to defend yeah. his turf. Like they're, they just yeah. happen to be on different teams or yeah. different yeah. cultures. I'm curious what you think about that because like this brothers in arms thing across the battlefield seems to be something that comes up a lot in more yeah. memoirs and stuff. Yeah. You know, what were the dynamic factor in combat is men, men and women don't do what they do to save their lives. They do it to save their comrades' lives. The most powerful bond in the battlefield, and it goes back to ancient hunters. You know, we're trying to take down a mammoth as a team. And if your comrades are hurt, then the whole team is hurt. You know, and so we all, we're, we learn to sacrifice for the team, to support the team. Uh, uh, you put a bunch of people in combat together. Men and women don't know each other, don't care about each other. As soon as it's dark, as soon as people are dying, they're out of there. We put together a band of brothers and sisters, men and women who know and trust one another. They'll fight long and hard for each other. Audie Murphy is most decorated American soldier, World War II. He was asked one time why he did. The answer is very simple. They were killing my friends. They were killing my friends. Mm -hmm. So the most powerful motivation comes down to four-letter word, love. The most powerful motivation on the battlefield is love. People don't, don't lay their life down for for or their nation or some higher value, they lay the their life down for their comrades. Dakota Myers, an incredible story 
of great valor protecting his fellow Marines, his, his brothers and sisters, the others around him, you understand, or his fellow troops. And, uh, and, and so we keep coming back to love as one of the greatest, the single greatest motivating factor on the planet. The mama critter will fight to the death to protect her babies, her young. Uh, and and she won't die for anybody else's babies. But the sheepdog, the sheepdog will lay their life down for strangers, for people they never met before. You know, and, and so the, there's a higher level of love there. Uh, I'm 63 years old. I retired from the Army 23 years ago. I've been on the road truly over 200 days a year, 200 nights a year, sometimes almost 300 nights a year on the road. Waiting at home for me is my bride of 44 years, my high school sweetheart. Uh, she was 15 when I proposed to her. I was 17. Well, I tell who we are from Arkansas. And two years later, she married a crazy army paratroop. Been this ride me for 44 years. I love her more than life itself. But for the last 23 years, I get home one, maybe two nights a week, conjugal visit, clean underwear back in the road. Because the only people on earth more precious than my bride are my grandchildren. And we believe if we love our children, if we love our grandchildren, we love our nation, We'll give 100%. Uh, it's my prayer I can do this for another 20 years. Every day I have the health, every day that somebody wants to hear what I got to give, I'm going to go do it. Because the thing about love is the worse it gets, the more determined you become to give it all you got. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, I tell a lot of us, as we love our nations, we love our comrades, as we love our, our family, our children, we got to dedicate ourselves to giving 100%. And love is that, that greatest motivator of all. Who do we love? What do we love? And dedicate our lives to protecting that, that sheepdog, that protector model. It's one of the most powerful places we can focus our energies. And love is a, the defining characteristic on the battlefield that motivates people to lay their life down. Greater love is no one than this, to give their life for their friends. But there's many ways to give your life. Sometimes your greatest love is not to sacrifice your life but to live a life of sacrifice, to place the welfare above this head of your own, to walk out every day of your life, to do a dirty, dangerous, thankless job to the utmost of your ability, because you know if nobody did it, a civilization will no longer exist. Not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. Most of us are lies the greatest life. Huh. Do you think uh, sheepdog or, uh, sheepdogs are more fulfilled than sheep? I, I, I think so. I think, you know, the sheepdog, especially when bad things come down and bad things happen to everybody eventually, the sheepdog is far better prepared. The sheep, their defense is denial. The sheepdog's defense is preparation, right? training, mm-hmm. equipment. You know, uh, uh, I wrote a lot about atrocity in my book on killing. And a lady interviewed me one time and, and, and she talked about three different people who wrote incredible books about atrocity and then took their lives. Lady who wrote the book, The Rape of Nanking, which I tap into in my book, A Fair Amount, mm-hmm. a couple other books on Nazi killers. And they wrote this, these vivid, powerful books about this evil, and the rape of Nanking, the Nazi death camps. And then they killed themselves. And she said, well, I, have you been harmed by your... I said, no, because I'm a warrior. I'm a sheepdog. And, and when I see things like that, all it does is motivate me to train. You know, I'm, I'm a reserve cop. I've always got a gun on me. Uh, Phil Chalmers, uh, Phil Chalmers uh, had wrote the book uh, Inside the Mind of a Teen Killer. 
Phil has an amazing class where he trades about mass murders. And he tells people about, and he shows crime scene photos, crime scene photo after photo of this family horribly murdered, women and children and father murdered. He looked at these crime scene photos and, and, and cops are empowered by this. Civilians are shattered by it. All those things did to me was renewed determination to carry a weapon and to hit the range. I, I'm a sheepdog. I, I, I've got skills. I, I, I can confront this evil. I'm a better shot. I'm faster out of the draw. I have the tools. All this thing does to me as a sheepdog is motivate me to train more and to prepare more. But if you're a sheep and you see evil, what can you do? What can you do? Yeah, well, it's kind of a luxury to be a sheep. Uh, culturally, yeah. I mean, we probably have more now than ever because a couple hundred years ago, we all had to carry a weapon just because. Yeah. yeah. But yeah I now, thought that that's oh, coming out of the pandemic is we'll see a lot more people. Even if they don't even know the term, you're going to see a lot more people choosing to be a sheepdog coming out of this pandemic dynamic of bad things happening all around us. And it will re remind us what our ancestors knew, that we got to be prepared. You were saying, go ahead, please. I was just, uh, yeah, when you were explaining the different condition levels, condition white, yellow, red. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I forget what words you use, but condition white was a, was a state that no sheepdog should ever really be in. It's maybe a yeah. overly parasympathetic state, but that's kind of the luxury that uh, sheepdogs give civilians, right? Like they get to be in that state all the time because someone else is walking the perimeter. Oh, that's well said. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. part of the equation. But they can make a choice. You know, we wrap up the sheepdog kids book by saying, mm -hmm. you know, in nature, sheep are born as sheep. And. Dogs are born as dogs, and wolves are not really bad. They're an important part of nature. But people are different. Mm -hmm. People are whatever they want to be. Have you got what it takes to be a sheep? And that's how we wrap up the book. You know, this is just a metaphor. It's just a model. Right. And it's not yes or no. It's a continuum. And we can take a few steps up that continuum. But the thing to understand is that preparation saves us twice. It saves us once physically. We have the tools, we have the skills, and we're triumphant. It saves us twice psychologically, because even if we fail, we can live with ourselves. We do everything we can do. Preparation saves us twice. Denial kills us twice. Hmm. Kills us once physically. You don't have the tools, you don't have the skills, and you die like any other sheep. But even if you survive, you live the rest of your life in hell when there's simple things you could and should have done. So it's all about preparation and, and taking a few steps up the path and embracing that sheepdog model, the warrior archetype, the protector archetype. And, and that's so much of what you're doing. That's why I think I'm, I'm so uh, excited about what you're contributing, you know, with your jujitsu, you. your martial arts background. Uh, I control my body, you know, with, with orgasm control or other dynamics. <laughs> my body doesn't control me. And, uh, and, uh, and, and we, we explore and we understand and, and we're prepared to defend our loved ones, and we accept responsibility to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones. I was curious if you had any final thoughts on, um, so for the average guy listening yeah. to this who's never seen combat, maybe never trained in anything, yeah. but he's recognizing like, oh, wow, I, I need to tap yeah. into this. I need to be able to be a sheepdog. But he has no relationship to violence. Uh, yeah. He has, like, what would you say to, what would you say to someone who, starting from scratch yeah. but he's an adult First off, that that's a beautiful and wonderful thing because you're you're already three quarters of the way there right i, I really am a big believer in the martial arts and, and and americans love the martial arts you know bowling leagues and 
America's not very competitive. 20 million people in the martial arts, only a couple thousand actively compete, but striving for that next belt. That's mm -hmm. something we can handle. I think one of the great growth industries in the near future is Hojutsu, the martial art of the fire rat. H-O-J-U-T-S-U dot com, Hojutsu.com. And uh, the guy that put it together, he's a, a ranger uh, uh, right at the end of Vietnam. He's a most decorated Alaska state trooper. He's one of only 30-odd grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. Jeff Hall, high-level martial artist, multiple skills. And he's resurrected the Japanese art of the firearm. And I thought it was good. I'm a gun sight, you know, trained and front sight trained and military trained. And they do three-day weekends. And, uh, and I, I go to one a year and, and kind of co-sponsor it and add my two bits. But I went to a three-day weekend. Uh, it begins in the dojo and transitions to the range. And at the end of the, the, the three days, comes back to the dojo. But I, I barely made brown belt by the skin of my teeth. Hmm. I knew what shots I was missing and the time hacks. And I trained for two years to get my black belt. And, uh, and, and so this idea of striving for the next belt, I would encourage people, find the local martial arts instructors in your community. You know, the jujitsu are, are good stuff. Uh, I, 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 you know, uh, a lot of other things that we could be doing, strive for the martial arts. If, if, think about pepper spray as, as a good step in the right direction. Shot a pepper spray and run, you know? Uh, if you want to come further up that continuum, if you choose to carry a gun, if it's legal and lawful where you live, then seek training. Don't just, don't just carry a gun, seek training. And there's good people out there that will train you. It's one of the best investments you can ever make. It's not the gun. What kind of gun should I have? You know, the kind of gun doesn't matter all that much. What matters is up here, the training, the skills, hmm. the abilities. And so we, we, we encourage people, if you're going to choose to carry a gun, then, then seek that training. Because there's people everywhere. Go to any range. You'll find, you know, if you wanted to golf, you'd find a golfing pro. You wouldn't just buy golf clubs and stagger out there and start whacking things. You'd have somebody teach you. If you're going to carry a gun, then, then seek that training. And I think that firearms training is going to be the great growth industry in the coming years, martial arts training and, and the mental side of the house, what you're doing is also a critical piece of that equation. Does that all make sense? The things we get yeah. doing right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you recommend uh, Hujitsu uh, to someone who is very limited firearms training? Or is that... Yeah, you gotcha. can walk in the door as a white belt, knowing absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. Do the three-day weekend, come out the other end as a green belt. You know, you, you can, cool. you know, you, and those first couple of days, the degree of skill is, is explosive. And then as you get to higher and higher levels of skills, it becomes more and more difficult. Hmm. But we can teach the basics in a three-day class and, and it's just brilliant stuff. It will just, it will, yeah. it will, it will transform your world. It will rock your world. I've been meaning to get some training because my, my cousin taught me how to shoot in, on his farm. And I'm sure I have really terrible <laughs> habits when it comes to pistols well, or everything. In July... But... Yeah. Uh, this July in, uh, in South Bend, Indiana, is, uh, go to the hujutsu.com. I'm, I'm kind of guest instructor, co-instructor for a little three-day weekend. Uh, uh, and, and come on down. Because I tell awesome. you, people take you from the ground up, drawing, safety, dynamics, moving fire. And hujutsu practitioners, we're, we're closing on 30 of the hujutsu practitioners who have been in real-world gunfights. Well, from cops. And we got a 98% over, a little over 98% hit rate wow. in real world events with hujitsu practitioners. Hmm. That's astounding. Nobody, nobody has those kind of hit rates. And so the, the mechanism has proven itself over and over again. 
uh, closing on 30 times now in real world gunfights, uh, enormous value. Uh, it, it's all paper targets, but it's moving and shooting. It's high stress, low stress, fast and slow. Uh, it, it's beautiful stuff. And, and again, uh, uh, go to any of them, hujitsu.com. There's the one I'll be doing in South Bend, uh, Indiana. Uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to train with me and awesome. have a chance to nurture people along and give yeah, them. Hopefully, uh, we can fly when it comes to yeah, that point. Yeah, I'd be uh, glad you do. By yeah, July, yeah. hopefully, we'll be able to yeah, fly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so, this is my final question. I actually meant to sure. ask you earlier, but. Um, uh, you're quite a prolific writer, and I really enjoy your, yeah. your writing style. Yeah. I was curious uh, if you could share a little bit about your writing process, because you've put out you know, like six or seven books, I think, right? Yeah, I'm glad you yeah. asked that. And i got three books in the pipeline right now. Number one, mm -hmm. it's really good to have a writing partner. It's good to have a lot of people hungry out there, and, and they can do the writing, and then you can help them and edit it and work with it to varying degrees. But the easiest way, Grossman's shortcut to a book. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's hard to write, but most of us can teach a pretty good class. So what I tell people is, you know, my, my most important book up to this point, I think uh, on spiritual combat is going to transcend it. Most important book at this point is on combat. And with on combat, what we did, my class had evolved from on killing to a totally different topic. And, and, uh, and we did a two-day class. We audio taped the class. We had a lady transcribe it. You know, there are people online that will do, they'll turn it into paragraphs and sentences, just like that. She transcribed it, and then we added case studies and examples. If you can teach a decent class, you can write a book. You can take these podcasts. You know, Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown uh, in Colorado, uh, he had me on his, on his uh, radio show quite a while back, the War Podcast. But he collected the audios from his radio shows, transcribed them, and put them in a book. And it was a brilliant book. And I had a chapter in the book. I get it on my bookshelf now, yeah. But uh, uh, you can take these podcasts, and you can have them transcribed. I'm a big fan of Upwork.com. And, uh, and, uh, and Upwork.com, we found a, the, the artists for our latest uh, children's book there. There's people online. We can get, do you see their record? Uh, there's some, some lady in Malaysia who, you know, will, will transcribe the, your, your audio and turn it into a piece of paper, chapters and paragraphs and subparagraphs, and the work's already done. Again, if you can talk, if you can teach a class, then you write a book. And so audio, audio tape that book or take the series of your podcasts, uh, have those podcasts uh, transcribed, find somebody who's doing a good job, breaking it into paragraphs and sentences, and you're three quarters of the way home. Do a little edit run on that, and you're good to go. Jerry Brown knocked out a book by doing nothing. But uh, <laughs> I don't agree with his politics in many ways, but he's a very wise man. And he, uh, uh, he, he took all of these radio interviews, and they were nice interviews. They were like half-hour interviews, transcribed them, put them in a book. It was a pretty darn good book. So you got all the tools you need right now to knock out your first book with your cool. best podcast and collect that info and put it all in there. Gotcha. And uh, as far as like the material, are these just things like, like, how did you go from on killing to on combat? Was it just that's, your interest changed? Yeah, I, I was teaching from on killing. I got out of the army in uh, 1997, uh, 98, I began teaching and presenting. But in that point in time, the only people who were in combat was law enforcement. The only people who were fighting for their lives on a daily basis was law enforcement. I do a lot of reading and law enforcement research. I teach a lot of cops. And I realized that for those who fully prepared themselves, killing on killing is just not that big a deal. 
the heart of combat, the thing that was hurt, helped messing people up was tunnel vision, slow motion time, auditory exclusion and memory gaps. And it was absolutely messing them up because they, nobody warned them this stuff was going to happen. So my class had evolved over a period of, uh, of about five years or so to where we could transcribe it and audio tape it. And it was a totally different product. As you teach, as you, yeah, the best way to learn is to teach. And you will find your mastery of the subject will evolve. And, and you'll hit a point where your class, you suddenly realize that decade later, it's completely different than what you were teaching a decade ago. Because your mastery and your knowledge and your ability has come to new levels. Uh, and, uh, and that's what it's all about. And there's a cycle. There's a cycle of learning and applying and learning and applying. There's not a cycle. It's a spiral staircase. Mm-hmm. And you learn and you apply at a higher level. And you learn and you apply at a higher level. So believe in what you're doing. You're training. You're talking to great people. Your, 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 your underlying concept will evolve. And, and somewhere down the line, you teach that class. You audio tape that. Add in some of these transcripts you thought were of value. Edit those to where you want them to cover what you want them to cover. And you have something enormously powerful with minimal minimal effort. Awesome. Uh, words on paper is hard work. It's just hard work. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can talk forever. No problem. We try to train those words and sentences, you know, on paper. It's hard work. But yeah. audio tape that, that class and you're halfway home. Cool. Yeah, well, uh, this has been an awesome. Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, it's been such an honor to speak with you. Um, I'm going to see about seeing if I can meet you in uh, July. That'd be great. Or we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, Thanks, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey, um, my website, kilology.com, yep. K-I-L-L-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scholarly study of killing. Sexology, suicidology. I coined the concept of killo, not homicide, lawful killing. Killology.com. Mm-hmm. And the, my books are all listed there. My website, uh, uh, also uh, on on Facebook uh, and on LinkedIn, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Com, the Dave <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Uh, but in the meanwhile, brother, keep up the fire. The world needs what you got to give. Believe in who thank you, you are. All right, thank you, Ben. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media at Rwando, and please do not forget to subscribe.